1: hello everyone how are you guys doing i'm still here still here for you how was your week for me it was a whirlwind of many things some of which caused a great deal of anxiety i am sure that you must feel that way sometimes maybe every day i don't know what your situation is but The goal here on the podcast that I bring to you each week is to help you in the process of healing. Your past trauma, your current trauma, provide you tools to help you cope with everyday life. I'm here to assure you that it does get better on the other side of abuse. I am on the other side, but healing is a journey have come along so far from where I was, and you will be too. There are different ways of healing along that journey, and we are not going to be 100% healed this side of heaven. Sorry to give you that news, but we definitely can heal to the point where we can get on with our lives, we can help others, we can encourage one another. We can get through the day without being triggered. Or if we get triggered by something that happens that reminds you of your past abuse, you will have the tools to be able to deal with it and move forward. One of those tools that I have is music. If you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, you know that I have been a musician since I was in kindergarten. And music has helped me get through some really hard times. It has helped me to process my trauma and my abuse. It has helped me to reach other people with that hope that you can not only survive, but you can thrive. And so we have a musical guest on today that's really exciting. I'm going to talk about him in his ministry shortly. But I do want to do a little bit of housekeeping today. I want to get to know you. I would like to meet you. And so we've been talking about doing a a Zoom meet and greet for a while now. I am going to schedule it for June 25th, which is a Saturday, at 10 a.m. Arizona time. You will probably have to Google what The time will be in your time zone, whatever part of the world you're in. And I do plan on it being the last Saturday of the month. I'm going to try and make it a recurring meet up. If you're not able to meet this coming one, then there will be future ones. So I encourage you to sign up and it's going to be very casual. We're just going to sit around and meet one another you know how do you feel about the podcast what kind of things do you want that I'm not covering I talk about you and what your life is about so I really look forward to that and I hope that you come and hang out with me so now on to my guest for today let me read a little bit of his bio Dave Combs is a songwriter photographer, entrepreneur, and author with four decades of experience writing over 120 songs and creating 14 albums of soothing, relaxing, instrumental piano music. His songwriting began with the now popular standard, Rachel's Song. His soothing, relaxing music has been played millions of times worldwide on radio, satellite, and all internet streaming media. And it continues to touch the lives of millions of people all over the world. He is also the author of the best-selling book, Touched by the Music, How the Story and Music of Rachel's Song Can Change Your Life. Now, he has built his successful business with virtually no advertising And creating a worldwide following, he's received over 50,000 personal notes and letters of support for his music. So that sounds very interesting to me, how he came to that process of being so successful with this one song without any traditional advertising. Now, even if you don't like instrumental music... I ask that you would still come and listen to the interview. He's a very warm individual, uh, a great storyteller. We're going to talk about a few different topics. We're all about healing here on the podcast, and his music has helped heal some people with some major afflictions. So I think that you would want to know more about that we will have his song at the end of the podcast for you to hear. And in the show notes, there will be his information to get in touch with him. So here we go. Here is my conversation with Dave Combs. Enjoy. All right. Please welcome Dave Combs to the show.
0: Thank you, Diana, for inviting me. This is going to be a uh, an exciting conversation this afternoon. We will have lots of interesting topics around music to talk about.
1: Absolutely. And I was telling the listeners earlier that we're all about healing on this podcast and one of those tools is music. And it's a powerful tool and so we're excited that you're here and to hear your story and about your music. So, so let's start off with your upbringing and what your life was like growing up? Were you raised in a Christian home?
0: I most thankfully was. My mother and father both were Christians. My, well, you know, my ancestors. My grandfather was HK McConnell back in the 1800s and he was a Baptist minister. And so I, I come from a, a, a family who loves the Lord and who uh, has loves music. And so I I grew up in a family in, in, basically at home and in church, you know, every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, we were in the, in the church with, I was a Baptist, Calvary Baptist church in Irwin, Tennessee. But both my parents were musical. My mother played the piano. She took lessons when she was a little girl and, and my father, he played by ear. His, Mm -hmm. his mother, my grandma Combs played by ear. She was five foot four born in 1894. And before electricity was anywhere in the, the churches, they had, they used an old pump organ to play their music in the church, that along of course with a piano. Mm-hmm. But her favorite, one of her favorite instruments, and I have it right here, this is my grandmother's auto harp. And she would love to play this thing and sing hymns. And and when she passed away, uh, in the case that this was in, there was a note and it was signed by Granny Estelle Combs this harp belongs to my grandson, David, <laughs> and that's me. <laughs> so I'm I'm the proud recipient of my grandma's auto harp, which I helped tune up for her many, many, many times and wonderful memories of her singing Amazing Grace and all those favorite old hymns that she loved to sing. So yes, music has been a big part of my Christian life and my life in general.
1: So is the auto harp, is, is that on your recordings?
0: No, it's not. I, I was uh, ironically, it's it's really not. But it's uh, maybe perhaps it should have been. But uh, it's it's not. It's just something that I play. You know, I can still you know sit down and it's not in real great tune, but you can hear it. And... Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. So you can you just push a button and strum it and play, and it just sounds. It sounds pretty good, I think. So that
1: sounds, that's, that sounds like a lot of fun. It You're is. It's and fun. Well, and you them.
0: know, a little kid, even if you don't know music, this one is so simple. You just push a button and strum your finger across it. Sounds good. So you don't have to be a genius musician to make music with it. <laughs> so it's really a pretty neat little instrument.
1: Now when did, when did Jesus become real to you in, in a personal way?
0: Well, I accepted him as my savior when I was uh, right at a teenager age. And uh, I think, you know, being active in music and I, 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 becoming a part-time minister of music at church, uh, I saw firsthand how the, that the gospel and my religion and how real Jesus was when you sang about Jesus. Uh, you know, there's Bill Gaither writes all those wonderful songs about Jesus, the, the, mm. about his name and so forth, but uh, music and, my religion and my Savior, all of that—it was so real to me when when I was in my church services, or when I'm by myself out hiking in the mountains of East Tennessee, where I was born and raised. There's nothing mm-hmm. better than sitting on a mountaintop and looking around at 360 degrees of God's creation, mm-hmm. and just realizing how great God is and what His He has created, and and and, and how amazing it is that he has a personal relationship with me, one of billions of people on this planet. And so there, it's hard, I couldn't put a point that said, right, that's the day or time that I, it, he became real. It's just, he's been real in my life, I think, since I was a little kid and, and it's just, and it is, it's still to this day.
1: Yeah, the Christian life is a journey and you just love him more each day as time goes on and learn more about him, right?
0: That's right. That is exactly right.
1: Amen. Did you always want to be a musician?
0: Well, having been born in a musical family and also having been born in the state of Tennessee. Now, I think I may be wrong on this, but there may be a law on the books in Tennessee (laughs) that you have to play an instrument if you live in Tennessee. You know, they called Nashville, Tennessee as the music, Music City, USA. And everybody I knew when I was growing up played something, you know, they're (laughs) either the guitar or, or they or they sang and and whatever. So music was everywhere. But uh, I, I guess it just is in my bones and in my DNA to, to enjoy and love music. And it's kind of funny. I was 33 years old before I wrote my first song. Now, you, you, as a, you're a songwriter, so you probably wrote your music much, much earlier than that. But I didn't start writing music or creating music of my own until I was 33 years old. Now, that's a real puzzle to me, and, but I think the answer is nobody ever told me that Dave Combs or David Combs, as I was called back, way back then, you could write music now everybody was focused on playing somebody else's music in the choir we would always sing music from you know john w peterson's cantatas or the wonderful hymns out of the baptist hymnal or special choir music that we would would purchase and whatever somebody else's music
1: Mm -hmm. and it
0: i don't know why but it never occurred to me to sit down and try to write a song or music of my own and that's really been always still a puzzle to me why that it took me 33 years to figure out that I could write music because after I started, I've written over 120 songs and recorded over 170 in Nashville Mm -hmm. with Gary Prim as the the arranger and performer on the piano and on the keyboard. So it's just uh, (laughs) my life journey has been a, a long one. I'm no young spring chicken at this point, but most of my life has always had something to do with music. But only since age 33 did it have to do with making music of my own. So that's a that's still kind of a little bit of a mystery to me, but I'm just grateful that it did eventually happen, thank goodness.
1: So, yeah, that's amazing. I, I don't come from a musical family. I i am the only singer besides my one of my first cousins. She sings. Mm-hmm. But I'm the only musician in my family. People ask me. Oh, you must come from a musical family. I'm like, no, I I don't. My <laughs> parents, they don't play an instrument or sing, and my siblings don't sing. And I think my sister took the clarinet in grade school, but that was, she doesn't mm-hmm. do that anymore. How did you write your first song? What was the process for that?
0: Well, I really never, I I did not sit down to write a song. My way of relaxing from when I would come home from a stressful day at work, because I worked for a company called Western Electric, which was the manufacturing arm of the Bell system. We made all, anything had to do with telephones and telephone calls, we made the equipment for it. And my job was in the technical side of it, the information technology and computers and all that kind of thing. And so when I would come home from a hard day's work, I would head straight to the piano and sit down and just play something. I don't know what instrument you you play when you're writing a song, whether it's a guitar or piano, but, you know, when you sit down at an instrument and start making music, somehow or other, it takes the the stresses and strains and all the the bad things that might have happened during the day, they kind of disappear, you're in a a musical world that where everything is now focused on the pleasantness of the music that you're hearing and creating. Mm -hmm. So that particular evening in January of 1981, I sat down at my piano, and I simply played this song. I don't know whether you've ever had the occasion when you just, you didn't even sit down to write a song. It just came to you, just boom, like that, and it just flowed through you. Well, that was what happened to me that evening. I sat down, and I started playing in the key of C, and I played this beautiful melody with the chords and... It was started off the key of the C chord, and then it went to an A minor chord, and then a D minor, and then a G seventh, and back to C, and so forth. And it had a chorus to it. It was a verse and a chorus, and I played it. I liked the way it sounded on my grand piano, and I didn't think much about it. I certainly didn't think of it as having sitting down and wrote a song. I didn't even write it down. I just, you know, I had it up here in my head. Well, two days later, My wife comes home from work and she says, and her name's Linda, she says, Dave, what is the name of this song that I've got stuck in my head all day long? I've been humming it to myself all day. And she hummed a little bit of it. And I said, well, Linda, it doesn't have a name. And she says, what? You play it on the piano all the time. It's got to have a name. I said, no, it's just something that I made up. And she said, wow, have you written it down? I said, no. It's, I've got it up here. It's not going anywhere. I won't forget it. And she said, "Nope, nope. Something might happen to you, and that song would be gone. Oh. You know, she'd be, she wouldn't <laughs> be able to remember it like like I would." So she said, "You you got to write it down and put it in the piano bench, so that if something happened to you, it'd be we'd have it." Okay, so I did. Wrote the melody and the chords. You know, a lead sheet basically, of the song down and put it in the piano. Well, I didn't think much more about it, except you know, I played it. Periodically for us and anybody else that wanted to hear some music. And then two years later, some good friends of ours had a little baby girl named Rachel. And they asked me and Linda to be her godparents. Her parents did. And so uh, at little Rachel's christening service, we're sitting there. It's a private service on a Saturday, and it's just us and the family and the minister. And we're at this little country church, and up at the front of the church, on the platform is a baby grand piano. And I'm sitting there, Linda and I are listening to all of these wonderful words about little baby Rachel and the blessings of life and all that. And toward the end of the formal part of the service, I punched Linda and I said, Hey, I got an idea. Why don't I play this song that we've been trying to think of a name for and couldn't ever come up with one. Why don't I play that now as part of the service? Uh, assuming they'll let me be okay. And she said, that's a good idea. So I went up and asked the family and the minister if it'd be okay if I played a song on the piano and they have said, okay, everybody sat back down. I walked over to the piano I sat down and I played this song. I got most of the way through it. It be- sounded beautiful in that little church. I got most of the way through it. And I hear in the audience, <clears throat> people <clears throat> clearing their throat and some sniffles going on, and <laughs> you know, one of those. And I, and I realized I had some tears coming out of my eyes. Well, I'm sure you've been to a christening service before and they're, they're really sweet and precious and they're tender anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you
0: layer on top of that a beautiful piece of music that really tugs at your heartstrings. Well, the tears are going to flow and they did but when I finished playing the song, I looked over at little Rachel in the arms of her mother. And I said, from now on, this song will be called Rachel's song in her honor. And that's Uh how it got it. That's how it got its name. And of course the name stuck. It was just the perfect name for it. So that was how it got written and named. But now what happened, what am I gonna do with it next? uh i really didn't do hardly anything except play it for about three years and about 1986 three years later i was doing a lot of traveling with at t western electric Uh, and one of the places that i was traveling to and and working all week was in nashville tennessee of all places Mm -hmm. and so linda says dave while you're in nashville why don't you get a professional demo recording made of Rachel's song? Something we can have and give to the family and, you know, just all everybody enjoy. So, I said that's a great idea. So, one evening after work, I'm driving around downtown Nashville. My objective was to find a studio that would record my demo. And I go over to a part of town that I knew was mostly music. It's called Music Square. It's about two square blocks of everything in that two blocks square is music. You have the country music hall of fame. You have RCA studios, the old studio that you can do have a tour of at ASCAP headquarters, BMI headquarters, all these, everything to do with music. And I'm driving down this side street called Roy Acuff place. Now, some of your listeners and viewers will remember Roy Acuff Mm -hmm. was a much loved country music person in Nashville, Tennessee. They named the street after him after he passed away. So I'm driving down Roy Acuff place and I see this building that looks like a barn. It's got a barn shaped roof to it. And out on the street corner is this great big water wheel that they've obviously moved from some mill someplace. And on the side of the building, it says the music mill. And so I thought, well, this is encouraging. Went around and pulled in the parking lot and sure enough, there was a i saw through the glass door there was a man sitting at a desk in the lobby well this i'd not this is the first place i'd found that i could actually see somebody working it was in the evening and as we say down south they roll up the sidewalks at 5:30 and <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow so i go in and i knock on the door and this man comes and he unlocks and opens the door and he says hello i'm george clinton can i help you Now it's a different George Clinton than most people know of today, but he was a recording engineer in Nashville. So anyway, he introduced himself and I told him I was looking for a studio to record a demo of a song. And he said, well, come on in. And he invited me in the lobby. And as soon as I stepped in, I looked over to my left up on this big two-story lobby wall and there was this life-size picture of Glenn Campbell. And here's a great life-size big panorama picture of the group Alabama. Mm-hmm. And over here's the Forrester Sisters, and then there's gold records and platinum records all framed around the walls. It was a classy looking lobby, impressive, really impressive. And George says, Well, this is a studio, young man. And he said, uh, I said, Well, I've never been in one before. <clears throat> and he said, Well, you're lucky. Nobody's recording right now. So why don't I give you a tour of the place? So he's. He said let's go over in studio a that's the big studio or and there's nobody there recording so we go in this big room where the musicians set up you could put an orchestra in there it was huge room Mm
1: -hmm.
0: with a grand concert grand piano over in the corner and booth isolation booths around the wall and you know glass enclosed it was really an impressive room and then he says let's go into the control room And let me show you where all the magic happens with the recording. So he opens this big, thick, about eight inch thick door. It's a soundproof door. So he opens it up and we go in. First thing I see is the console, the control console. And it's about eight feet long. It has, I later learned about 32 tracks, sliders and switches and places to plug things in and lights and everything, knobs. I said, George, you could, it looks like you could launch a spaceship from in here. It, it was really impressive around the wall were all these digital tape recorders and, uh, recording machines and monitor speakers up on the wall that you could hear the sound from. And this big picture glass window that you could soundproof that you could look out into the room where the musicians were. It was impressive. And so I said, George, how much does this place rent for? He says, well, it's $125 an hour plus engineer. And I thought, whoa, and because in today's dollars, this was 1986, right. in today's dollars, that would be over $400 an hour, which mm-hmm. is a, a lot of money. So I guess he saw how disappointed I was in that figure, but he says, but the fellow that owns this studio owns a small studio across the street. And it's only $15 an hour plus an engineer. It has a baby grand piano and a small control room, you know, but it'll do the trick for a small demo. I said, well, that's great. Cause I can afford that. I said, well, <clears throat> now we got the studio figured out. I need a musician that will arrange and perform my song for me. My demo, do the demo. And it's a piano piece and real simple. He said, I know just the right person for you. He said, his name is Gary Prim. P-R-I-M. He said, I've known Gary forever, and we go to church together. He's a wonderful session musician in Nashville, young man that everybody thinks the world of. Yeah, he'll do a great job for you. So let's go back over at my desk, and I'll look up his phone number for you. So he wrote his number on a piece of paper for me and gave it to me. I left, jumped in my rental car, and I hightailed it back to my hotel room close to the airport because I needed to call Gary you say well why didn't you call him on your cell phone cell phones hadn't been invented this was 1986. (laughs) the internet had not been invented this was 1986. Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i had to go to a landline to call gary got to my hotel room called him up and he i got his answering machine and he called me back in about 30 minutes i told him what i needed and he said he'd be glad to do that and i said what do you need from me and he said i just need you to send me a recording of you playing it, so I'll know what it sounds like, and send me a lead sheet. Well, I said, there's one thing, what is a lead sheet? At that point, I did not know the terminology of the music industry in Nashville. I didn't know what a lead sheet was. He said, well, a lead sheet's just the melody and the chords written out on a piece of paper. I said, well, I've got that. I just didn't know to call it a lead sheet. So got back home that weekend and Sent Gary the lead sheet and the cassette tape of me playing Rachel's song. And I met Gary in the studio two weeks later on a Friday evening where I was having to work all weekend long cutting over some software at the factory. So on Friday evening, I had lined up to meet Gary at this little studio at 6 o'clock. This was August the 22nd, 1986, at 6 o'clock in the evening at this little tiny studio across the street from the music mill. And I never will forget it because that night changed my life. I met Gary for the first time when he walked in the door carrying his synthesizer under his arm. It was a a, a Yamaha DX7 synthesizer, a really great analog synthesizer. So he sets up, sets his synthesizer down and goes over to this baby grand piano and starts warming up a little bit. And I go into the control room with the engineer and pretty soon Gary's ready to record. So the engineer pushes record on the the machine and says, we're rolling. (laughs) So I get to tell Gary we're, we're recording. And so Gary starts playing my music. Now, remember, I have never heard my music played by anybody but me prior Mm -hmm. to that point. So here I am in the control room, listening to this piano music of my song played in a fantastic way. That I had just couldn't imagine. Could, I could never have imagined how good it was going to sound. Well, Gary gets most of the way through it, and then he stops. He said, "No, nah, let's start over. Let's do a, another take on it. I can do better." So, rewind everything, start all over. He records, the, plays the song the second time through. Perfect, from beginning to end, no mistakes, no no errors, nothing. Beautiful. And I, if he had stopped right there, I would have been as happy as I could be because it sounded wonderful. But Gary says, Nope, I'm not done yet. He says, I've been thinking about this song. And I've got some more things I want to do to it. I want to put some strings, I want to put some electric piano, and I want to put some horns. And so we set up the the recording with two more tracks of low strings to give it some bottom, some high strings to give it some top, and then and, and some horns to give it some punch in the right places. And then and when you're listening to the recording and I hope everybody will when we're finished and the second in the in the chorus part of the of the very first verse up until that point it's been solo piano all you hear was the piano part as the chorus comes in in the key of in the chord of F he starts playing the electric piano sound on in perfect uh synchronized with the original pian- uh, acoustic piano and he called it doubling. So he was doubling the piano part on the electric piano. And when you hear it, you'll see the sound of the, of the notes is a much fuller, a richer sound to it. And so when you're listening to the recording, you can tell when Gary starts into the electric piano sound. And for the third verse of the song, he played it through three times, he instantly went up from the key of C to the key of C sharp. I mean, there was no modulation to it. It was just a boom. You're right there. And that just, it, I call it a musical surprise. It's one of those pleasant things that just catches you kind of off guard a little bit, but it's so it's powerful. It raises the energy level of the song up, a, up a notch. And so he did that. And after all of that, he comes back into control room and says, that's, that's, I think that's got it uh, perfectly. Well, it was more than perfect as far as I was concerned. It was absolutely (laughs) phenomenal. So we listened to it and he says, great. So I wrote him a check for the agreed upon amount and he gets his synthesizer and heads out the door. And at that point, I had no idea whether I would ever see Gary Prim again, but it turns out that I would because he and I would eventually go back in the studio over the years and record over 170 songs and over 120 are ones that I had written. But at that point, I had no idea, but he was a young 20-something-year-old, talented musician, and here I am in my mid-30s, and our lives are just, I, we didn't know it, but our lives were about to come together for a long time. And Gary and his wife, Julie, are like brother and sister to my Linda and myself, and we saw their two wonderful kids born and grow up, and. And that it's just a, a wonderful relationship. But that night in August of 1986 was a game changer for me. It was, it just set me on a path that only the good Lord could have seen how it was going to play out. It was, it was amazing what all happened from that night.
1: I think I need to hire Mr. Prem for myself <laughs> <laughs> Is he still, is he still available?
0: He is a much in demand studio musician yeah. in Nashville. He, rec- he records for a lot of people and he, he is sometimes the lead person on the session and sometimes he's just the, the keyboard player. But everybody in Nashville knows who Gary Prem is and they all highly respect him and his musical talents and abilities. They and they, they love him as a person as well. He's just a, a gentle soul with a giant talent in music
1: yeah absolutely you know you did all this without any advertising. you promoted the song. I mean, how did that even happen that's That's amazing.
0: <laughs> well, you know you're in the music business too, and as a songwriter, and you know how how difficult it is to get your music performed by someone else or get it on the radio or get it out into the the public kind of thing, well, this was back in the nineteen and eight late eighties when nineteen eighty eight when I went back with Gary and recorded the rest of the the Rachels song album the c d that has the first seven songs that I ever wrote on it, including Rachel's song. But once I had it recorded, i thought well the the people in the record store back then we used to have record stores that sold music that was the <laughs> we don't have those anymore. Uh, there may be a few in the country someplace, but by and large, they're they're gone. They're out of business. But back then, we had several, and they were nationwide franchises, big box stores. And I thought, naively, that they would just be welcome me with open arms when I come in the door with my music and how wonderful Rachel's song sounded and how well it was recep- received on the radio and all that kind of thing. Nope. You're, <laughs> nope. <laughs> unless you are a big name with a lot of money behind you and promoting your music these places were not interested at all not at all so i was obviously disappointed that was a, a huge disappointment it was an education realizing that they weren't re- re- they weren't concerned about the quality of the music they were concerned about the marketability of the music and who's behind it and the money behind it well i wasn't going to give up though because at the at at least I got great reception on the radio. I got it played on a local FM station by a local friend of mine who had a radio program on a station. He played it on the radio on an FM station. And as soon as it played, the radio station, and I was at back at home listening to it on my own music on the radio for the first time. And you know how exciting that could be to hear your own music played on the radio. Very exciting. So, uh, and, Shortly after the program finished, my phone rings and it's the the station manager of the FM station in Greensboro that played the the music. And he says, Dave, I've been in radio for over 20 years, and this has never happened to me before. He said, as soon as Bob, my friend, Bob McCone played Rachel's song on his program, he said, our phone bank of about 10 or 12 or 15 lines lit up. Every line was busy with a caller wanting to know, what's the name of that song again? Tell me more about Rachel's song, where can I get that music? Tell me more about this Combs guy in Winston-Salem and on and on. And, and he said, he said, man, you have got something here that I have never seen before happen in a radio station. He said, so I just wanted to let you know how great your song went over to our listening audience. That radio station played my Rachel's song ev- almost every hour. Once in rotation, almost every hour, it was an easy listening radio station. They played Rachel's song every hour for months and at least several times a day for years, it it just, it just had a life of its own. People couldn't get enough of hearing the music. Well, that was so encouraging and so affirming to me that this song did indeed deserve to be heard by a lot of people. I just, I just needed to find the way to get it there. That was up to me. the Lord gave the song to me, but he said, okay, Combs, (laughs) the rest is up to you. You got to figure out how to get this out into the world. So I started getting other radio stations to play Rachel's song, and I was very successful at it. I would call them, send them a sample of, you know, the song. They'd put it on their program and play it. I even got a hold of this company called Bonneville Broadcasting in Chicago that programmed over 200 radio stations all at one time. So that the person that programmed Rachel's song there, as soon as he said he loved it, and he did, he put it in the playlist. Instantly, it went out to 200 radio stations overnight. And then I started getting fan mail. People re- were tracking me down as to uh, writing me letters about how much they enjoyed my music, what it meant to them, how it touched their lives, and in some cases, how it af- changed their life or how it really affected them in a, in a healing way. How they were uh, basically calmed down, their stress levels were lower, all these good things that can happen with music. And I know you like to focus on how music can basically minister to anybody that's in a stressful situation, whether it's a, an abusive situation or any kind of stress, whether it's a health a health crisis in the family or mm-hmm. a marital situation or... Uh, abusive situation, any of those things. Whether alcoholism, I have—I got a one letter from a lady who said that my music had basically helped helped her maintain her sobriety. She had, had belonged to a A AA group uh, and had kept away from alcohol, but she said she couldn't sleep. So apparently, uh, lack of sleep is an, a side effect of alcoholism. And so she said, only after I got your music, Rachel's song, and played it, was I able to get a complete good night's sleep. And wow. she said, so I've used your music all this since then. And she said, your music has helped me maintain my sobriety. And so she just went to the trouble to write me that letter, and it, it blessed my heart. It was just, it spoke to me that said, okay, you're on the right track. Keep, keep it up. And I've got over 50,000 of those letters over the years, fifty thousand, and that's the was the impetus for me writing my book. I've in chapter twenty one of my book, and the book's title is "Touched by the Music." Chapter twenty one is about twenty one pages of uh, twenty two pages of stories and notes that I've gotten from people of testimonies of how that music positively affected their lives in many deep and meaningful ways.
1: That's amazing. Now you mentioned that there's some medical connection between instrumental music and health and wellness talk a little bit about that
0: well i anecdotally i kind of knew that from all the letters i had gotten because people would tell me about how the music had helped them heal from various uh, situations especially healing in a uh, mental and uh state of mind situation, not so much a physical healing of a disease or whatever. But you know, part of your health is your mental health. Well, music can have a big role in keeping you into a level and sane state of mind. And so I'd gotten all these letters and notes anecdotally telling me this. And so I got onto to Google uh, and did some research on how many medical articles there are of research studies, that actually show and actually prove that and my kind of music, instrumental, soothing, relaxing music, can literally lower your blood, blood pressure, it can reduce your heart rate down, and it has a calming effect of reducing stress hormones in your body and that kind of thing. And, you know, I think I've heard for years that stress is the silent killer anyway. You know, when you're in a, your life is full of stress, you are vulnerable to all kinds of diseases and ailments and things that can happen that are not good for you. So yes. if you can do anything that will reduce that level of stress in your life, you're, you're on a better pathway to a better healthful situation. So it's those medical studies that uh, I, I would love to have them have actually used my music as part of their test in their research But they, you know, they use other instrumental or classical kinds of music to study it. But still, it applies. And it confirms to me that those anecdotal stories about it are actually true and or have real substance to them. So there is that real connection between instrumental, soothing, relaxing music like mine, and a healing process in in the mind, body and soul. Yeah,
1: there's definitely some neurological stuff going on. I'm not a doctor or <laughs> or a nurse or anything, but your your sympathetic nervous system, if it it's always on and and PTSD, we talk about the soldiers over in Iraq fighting for people and being surrounded by violence and seeing death all the time. And when they come home they're Their brain and their nervous system is on full alert, like they were still in the war, you know? And I've heard stories that music has soothed that nervous system to make them be able to relax. And as you mentioned, to sleep, Uh Um, because a lot of them, they come back with nightmares and not being able to sleep and, and drug abuse. And you had one letter that talked about drug addiction. Was that right?
0: Yeah, there was. Uh, let's see. I can't remember the exact letter. I don't have it in front of me right now. But uh, people have been uh, addicted to drugs and basically used my music to help them, like the alcoholic said that she did, to uh, to stay away from it and to keep that temptation away. And, and you know, you mentioned the the uh, your your nervous system, your sympathetic nervous system, of how it's in the constant a lot of people are in this constant fight or flight mode of being so super sensitive and music like mine can, can kind of help put a calming on that rough water and and help to lower that sensitivity down somewhat. And, uh, there's a lot of study, I think that still needs to be done about how to better, how best to do that. But all I know is that in my case, when, people who have those tendencies and those problems and those anxieties going on that putting on, you know, a headset and listening to my music or putting earbuds or whatever you do to isolate the rest of the world from your, your brain, put on my music and it basically will take you to a, another place. It will allow you to, to block out all of that noise and chaos out of your life. And if you'll, you know, just close your eyes and listen to the music and let it, let it wash over you and wash it, wash through you. And I think that if you do that a certain number of times a day, I can't help but believe that that would help people to bring themselves to a, a healthier state of mind and, and physical being. So uh, it's uh, it's something I'm trying to spread the word around the world about my music. And you know, there's millions of people that hear it and have heard it already through the internet now all around the world but there's billions of people that have not heard it yet so i'm trying to encourage people to you know go listen to it and you know you can read my book and be read the inspiring stories about how i wrote it and so forth but the main thing is to go and experience the music for yourself and Mm -hmm. uh, and see what it does for you and write me a Write me an email or a story and tell me how my music has has affected your life. I'd love to hear from people.
1: You had an article in Guidepost magazine, and that must have yeah. been exciting.
0: It was. This was in 1994. And this is the magazine. It's the little magazine that most of your listeners and viewers are probably going to be familiar with Guideposts. It's a little magazine that has nothing but really uplifting, inspiring stories in the magazine.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's it has a subscription rate of about two to 3 million people used to be it only in paper and print. Now you can get it online on a PDF on and just read it online. But in 1994, I wrote an article called two part harmony that was in the magazine. And it tells the story of my quitting my job and how I wrote Rachel's song and how it led to getting it played on the radio and sold in gift shops all over the country and and eventually able to quit my job at AT&T and do my music full time. Well, when that little magazine it's it's this is the September 1994 issue. It went it hit the street sometime in August, late August. Well, as soon as it did, my phone rang off the wall. They, they put my phone number in the back of the book and the magazine. Wow. <laughs> and my address so i my phone would start ringing and people would say i read your article in Guideposts. i want to get my own copy of rachel's song so they'd want a cassette tape or a cd either one and so i would Inst i had to hire two people to help me answer the phone that phone never stopped ringing i mean you could you could just pick it up if somebody was on the phone It that many I have no idea how many people did not even get through because all I had was one phone line. I heard from over 10,000 people in two weeks. It was, I had to hire two, two people just to help me answer the phone. And my mailman, two days later comes knocking on my front door. And he, he's standing there holding this canvas bag. You know, you may have seen a big canvas mailbag that they yes, use at yeah. the post office. It, he couldn't even pick it up. It was that heavy. And he says, Dave, I don't know what you've done, but this bag is full of letters to you. And I said, really? And I said, well, I just wrote this little article in this guidepost magazine, and I guess they're writing letters to me. Well, my wife and I had to stay up all night long. It was six o'clock the next morning before we finally finished opening the last of the letters that were in that bag. Every one of them had a note in there, how much they enjoyed the the article and usually either a $10 bill or a a check for $10 for a cassette or 14 for a CD. And it was amazing. And so that was the power of just the story. They hadn't even heard the music. All they'd heard was the story about Rachel's song, which that was, that kind of blew me away because I thought people had, would have to hear the music to really want to, to purchase it or whatever. Well, that turned out not to be the case the, the powerful story about the music compelled people to want to hear it i guess and so i've the, the reprint of that article you'll find it on my website there's a link on, on my website where you can read the guideposts article and but it's uh that was a that was also one of those red letter days in my life too because when here i am sitting as you say fat dumb and happy with things going along so so and then all of a sudden this article hits the street and boom I go from a handful to 10,000 people and the phone ring and what am I going to do? So it's, uh, it, it put me on a, a trajectory that just hadn't, didn't, didn't even slow down. It just kept going.
1: That's, that's an incredible story. I mean, that, that sounds like a God thing because I mean, you would describe yourself as a regular guy, you know, there's, there's, um, nothing different about you than, than myself. And. A God had chose to spread your music in a miraculous way, I would say.
0: I would totally agree with you because you you asked me earlier about how, how I felt connected with, with Jesus and with God and my religion and so forth. And it was things like that, that happened, that it just was such a loud message to me. (laughs) It was like, you know, uh, the burning bush in the Bible or you know, some lightning striking or thunder rolling. It was finally I was getting the message that this is important. You're supposed to do something special with this. And it affects millions of people around the world. So that was, that was a, a real push for me to, to get on stay on the right track.
1: Right. And now we have digital music distribution. We have the internet and we have podcasts. And I'm sure you've noticed a huge popularity in your music even more now.
0: Well, I get reports today, of course, everything is pretty much digital. You know, I'm on Spotify and iHeartRadio, Pandora, all the, the digital streaming platforms. And of course, I get reports every month from these places of how many times each of my songs, and I have over 170 songs out there now, but I get a report on every one of them, how many times it's been streamed or downloaded each month. And it's amazing how many hundreds and hundreds of thousands, and sometimes millions of times the music has been streamed around the world. It's just, and in all countries. I mean, it's, it has no geographic limits whatsoever. My music is sometimes more popular in Brazil than it is in the United States. There was a race at one point or another where I looked and Brazil was the most popular place streaming my music. And I thought, mm. whoa, I don't even speak Portuguese. And here it is.
1: <laughs> surprise, surprise. Surprise.
0: But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm trying to explore that a little bit more with a friend. I have a new friend now in Brazil that is helping me try to understand what that relationship may or may not be. I also, as a side note, learned that my friend, John W. Peterson, who wrote all those wonderful cantatas, when his music in the United States kind of went on the uh, the downside, his music at that time was on the rise in Brazil. He was, his music was extremely popular in Brazil. He said, when I would go to Brazil, he said it was like I was a rock star or something. He I said it was unbelievably. So, you know, there are things, cultures are different and times change. And so it, it, th- who knows what's going to happen in the future, but I'm just pleased that apparently my music, since it doesn't have any words, is appealing in almost any, any culture.
1: Well, I'm hoping that since I'm rubbing elbows with you that someday I'll be able to quit my job and do my music <laughs> full time. <laughs>
0: Well, that is a it is a blessing. And that was that was a tough decision. You know, I, I grew up when when you got a good job with a great big company like AT&T or Western Electric or GE or, you know, General Motors, any of those big corporations, you were kind of expected to stay to, working with that company till you retired.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, when well, you're 40 gets your 40 year pen and retire, <laughs> you know, but uh, you know, I, at, I only had 22 years service when I finally quit my job at, at AT&T. So I didn't. I wasn't old enough to retire. I didn't have enough years to retire, and so it was a big step to walk away from a p- potential really great retirement from that corporation in just a few years. But I felt so strongly that it would been it would have been sinful for me to sit there and waste my time not in a, in a sense waste my time working at that corporation for three or four or five more years just so I could get a pension. Be qualified for a pension in that four or five year time period. I thought I can write more music. I can, per, you know, pursue my dream with my music, and which I did. So in February of twenty of nineteen ninety two, I met my boss at a restaurant and handed him my letter of resignation and said, "Bill, I'm sorry to tell you, but I can't afford to work here anymore." So. <laughs> So and he chuckled and, and my music had really exceeded my income from my AT&T at that point. So it wasn't a really hard decision monetarily wise, but, uh, you know, psychologically, it was a hard decision to walk away from that one career of mine in AT&T, sure. but it can be done. And in, in today's culture, uh if you stay to work for the same company over 2 or 3 years i think you're a long term employee but uh you know people yeah. go hopping around from one job to another this day and time all the time
1: corporation i work for now and they're doing restructuring and laying people off so yeah i've been with my company a long time but might not be for long so
0: keep pursuing your dream your talents and your gifts and as i always tell people you know when they want to know what can i do with my gifts so, well first of all you take action and you don't just keep them hidden under a bushel basket you 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 put it out there and today we have with technology wonderful ways to put your especially if you're a musician wonderful ways to display your music through youtube for videos and, and audio and then also through the uh, all, you know with apple music and amazon music all the places you could put it and all the streaming places on spotify and and all the others around so you have ways of exposing your music and promoting it yourself and there's no guarantees because you're out there in a very crowded marketplace now there's millions of other people trying to do the same thing but at least you have the opportunity you're not you're not limited to having to be a a multimillionaire to promote your music or have connections with promotion companies and record companies and publishers and that kind of thing you can do a lot of that yourself and so if, you know, if, if, if God wants that to happen for you, it will. So you just, but you are the one that has to take the action to put it out there and keep, keep moving, but keep, keep at it and never give up. Don't ever let anybody steal your dream. Just keep, keep a positive attitude and, and believe in yourself and visualize and envision where you want to go and pray that, uh, you'll be shown the path along the way to get there.
1: Excellent advice. Now, did we forget anything that you wanted to cover before we play your song?
0: Well, I don't think so, except to make sure people know where to go find my music, or at least play it for themselves after we're finished at at my website at combsmusic.com. It's very simple. Just remember my last name, Dave and Dave Combs, C-O-M-B-S, combsmusic.com. And that's all you're gonna to need to know because that have links to everything from that from that website. And you can actually play Rachel's song that you're gonna hear in a few minutes. That original demo recording is the same one I heard in that studio in 1986. It has not been remastered, remixed, anything. That's the original recording that Gary Prim created. And so I've already described it to you in the studio. So now you can put your headset on and listen for when Gary puts in the electric piano and when he kicks in the strings and when he goes the horns and that. And then you'll be, hopefully, be in there in the studio with me while that's being recorded.
1: I mean, why, why mess with perfection? I mean, he's a phenomenal <laughs> music producer and musician. And that's why I don't like all those movie remakes. They'll take a perfectly good movie <laughs> mm-hmm. and they redo it and I'm like, no
0: like the original yeah. like
1: the original yeah.
0: i sent rachel's song one time to my my childhood uh, idol for music anyway roger williams everybody remembers yes. roger yes. the piano player roger williams
1: mm-hmm.
0: I, w- I got his address and i sent sent him rachel's song and i said uh, mr williams i sure would be honored if you would do a cover of my rachel song i would love to hear you play in your style my song called Rachel's song. You know what he told me? Just what you just said. I'm not going to mess with perfection. He said, that song is absolutely perfect the way it is right now. And he said, I could not, Oof. I could not improve on that whatsoever. He said, I don't mean to just turn you down cold, but he said, that song is wonderful and don't change it. Hey,
1: that's a compliment man. you weren't rejected there, brother. No,
0: <laughs> that was a very, that was the best left-handed compliment I ever got. <laughs>
1: great this has been so wonderful having you today and learning about your song and your story and i i hope that the music goes further and further all over the world and we're going to listen to your song here rachel's song god bless you thanks so much for being on the show today
0: well, thank you, Diana. It's been my pleasure. It's always a joy to talk about my music and and our, our religion and our beliefs and to be able to hopefully bless and inspire other people's lives in the meantime. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope
1: to see you next week.